Greetings, Ghost Family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Before we start the show, I wanted to remind you that we're starting to think about stories for future episodes of Family Ghosts. So if you have one that you'd like to share with us, please send us an email, familyghosts at panoply.fm. That's familyghosts at p-a-n-o-p-l-y dot f-m. Also, just a quick note, we've changed some names in this episode to protect people's privacy. Thank you so much to all of you for listening. Let's get to our season finale. As soon as I step out of the car, I smell it. A dewy aroma, redolent of milkweed. It seems to follow me wherever I go in Ithaca, New York, this little city four hours northwest of Manhattan at the foot of a finger lake. The smell lurks in every breeze. Even downtown, it snakes between the buildings and clings to my coat. I can never get it out of my hair. Comparing it to milkweed probably makes it sound like a sweet, pleasant smell. And it is, at first. But there's something melancholy in it. Or mournful, maybe. Like stale honey in an old cupboard. Like it's the only sweetness that can survive in a place like this. I don't understand why anyone would choose to live in Ithaca. It manages to be rural without a hint of rustic charm, green without being lush, and hilly despite feeling flat. There may be a sweet fragrance on the wind, but everyone seems to have a sour expression on their face. I know how fussy and close-minded this all sounds, but I can't help it. I've just always hated Ithaca. And for 35 years, I've had no idea why. From Panoply, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 7, None of Your Business. In my memory, we would always drive into Ithaca late at night. It was quiet and sparsely populated, Every roof seemed like it was sagging under at least a foot of snow. Everything looked like it was about to fall over. The ramshackle houses, the trees, the shivering people shuffling along the sidewalks. It was always such a relief when we finally made it to my grandparents' house on the outskirts of town. Everything was fine there. We'd spend a few days sledding in the backyard, or if it was the summer, playing wiffle ball. It was great, except for that milkweed smell. And I never wanted to venture beyond Grandma and Grandpa's house into the surrounding area during those visits. Something just didn't feel right. Buddy. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Doing good. How was the game last night? I mean, I know your guys won. (laughs) If they did, Joe Ross... I called Poppy, a.k.a. my dad, a few months back and started out by talking about baseball because I was nervous to ask him the real question that's been on my mind, the one about Uncle Dick. I'm actually always a little nervous when I call Poppy, sometimes so nervous that I don't call at all. We were close all through childhood, and then he and my mom split up, and things grew distant. It was a few years into that distant period when I first heard about Uncle Dick. Growing up, I only knew of two siblings on my dad's side. Tom, the born-again Christian with a passion for deer hunting, 
and Rob, the wisecracking owner of a small railroad outside Buffalo. In the summer of 2010, when I was 28, I was in Ithaca with my younger brother Jake for our grandmother's 90th birthday party. We were sharing a room in the retirement community where she lived, and as we were falling asleep that night, I could hear Jake sniffling softly in the dark. What's wrong? I whispered. It's just been so hard for me recently, he replied. His relationship with his boyfriend had just ended badly, and the insomnia that he developed in the years after my parents' divorce had gotten worse than ever. He was just a couple years removed from about with stage four cancer, and things were feeling very bleak. He told me that he sometimes wished he could just make everything stop. I was terrified. I felt guilty. I'd gotten bad about staying in touch with Jake, too. You know we'd all be devastated to lose you, right, Jake? I asked him. He sobbed in the dark. Yes. Don't worry. Poppy told me the story of Uncle Dick, and I would never want to put him through something like that again. Wait, what? I said. Who's Uncle Dick? Oh, Jake said quietly. You don't know that story? And then Jake proceeded to tell me that when my dad was a teenager, his older brother Dick, who was also gay, killed himself, and that my dad was the one who found the body. We were silent for a while. I didn't even know he had another brother, I said, finally. You remember all those oil paintings that Grandma and Grandpa had on the walls, Jake asked? Dick painted those. Poppy said he was always a little different than the rest of them. Jake and I talked for a while longer, and he started to feel better. We fell asleep, and the next day at Grandma's 90th birthday party, I smiled and ate bunt cake. I even gave a toast full of jokes about spending long afternoons as a kid trying on her flannel skirts and isotoner gloves. She laughed and smiled, and so did Poppy and my uncles. I wondered if any of them were thinking about Uncle Dick, because now that I knew about him, I couldn't get him out of my head. One of the other weird things for me about our family trips to Ithaca was watching the way my dad morphed into a different person around his brothers. The way the round sounds begin to creep into his diction, particularly on phrases like, well, how about that? The self-deprecating tone he takes towards his law career, his sudden affinity for cheap beer and baked ham. And I've always marveled at the way those things would vanish the second we got back into the car and headed south on Route 81, leaving the flat hills of Ithaca in the rearview mirror. Suddenly, my dad was turning up Paul Simon on the tape deck, telling us all about the latest historical fiction novel he finished. It was like he had an upstate switch he could turn on and off. There used to be a version of my dad that had more to talk to me about than the Washington Nationals pitching staff. A version that wanted me to see and understand all the parts of his life, even the ones that made me uncomfortable. And I've had a theory, ever since that night in the dark with Jake, that Poppy told him about Uncle Dick to save his life. I like the way it makes me think of Poppy. It reminds me of that Paul Simon version of him. But I've never asked Poppy if it's true. And he's still never told me anything about Uncle Dick. 
For years, it's been this cautionary tale my dad conjured in Jake's darkest hour. Things got better, and Jake's doing great now. And the ghost of Uncle Dick has faded back into the shadows. My grandma died recently, and my dad told me he and his brothers were going to hold a small ceremony to bury her ashes in Uncle Tom's backyard, which, in addition to the gnats, is what I wanted to talk to my dad about on the phone that day. I guess I wanted to see if it would be okay for me to tag along with you to that and maybe use that as an opportunity to do interviews with you and with uh, Uncle Tom and Uncle Rob. Well, certainly, certainly good for you to show up there, be part of that. Um, And yeah, that would be great. It wasn't exactly a yes on the interviews. I also just wanted to but say But it that, wasn't a no. Um, I it really means a lot to me to be there with you guys for this not just like because of my project. Like I'm I'm really excited to get to be there to um just in general. So I really appreciate you having me along. Well, love to have you there. Um I didn't make a more formal kind of a presentation on it just because I didn't want to create a uh, feeling that you needed to be there. I was frustrated that he'd wanted to prevent me from feeling like I needed to be there. After all these years, it felt like I had to. I'm tired of being protected from the hard stuff. I want to know the things Poppy doesn't think I need to know, so I can stop explaining them with stories I invent to make myself feel better. You do take a walk on the dark side from time to time. <laughs> yeah, guilty as charged. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, um, great. nice to talk to you. I will uh, be in touch. Okay, sounds good, Poppy. All right, love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. The following Friday, I got in my car and headed north. Our story continues after the break. Upon arrival at Uncle Tom's house, which is way down at the end of a winding gravel road, I was greeted first by his dog, Patty. Hi, puppy. Hi. Hi. And then by Tom himself, who was wearing a crisp blue polo shirt tucked into old Wrangler jeans and a nylon belt. How are you? It's beautiful here. His house, like his clothing, was simple and clean. Two stories, a porch, big tree in the front yard. Good to see you, I'm give you a hug. Good to see you, buddy. How's it going? Come on, okay. Hey. Tom had laid out cheddar cheese and Ritz crackers on paper plates. He shows me around, though there's not much to see. Tom's house is all clean wood floors, a ticking clock, boxes of bottled water on the floor, and a poster of devotional phrases hanging on the refrigerator. But then he takes me upstairs. Oh, wow. I'm one of those people who laughs when I'm nervous. This is such a cool room. Yeah, I guess the proper term today is man cave, right? (laughs) The upstairs room of Tom's house is packed to the ceiling. He's got shelves full of empty bullet casings, 
posters for firearm companies, and rows and rows of deer antlers hanging on the wall. I would bet these are all, you've got all these, right? Yeah, right in the yard. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that one, and that one, and that one. This is the kind of thing I remember being confronted with during those childhood visits to Ithaca and feeling like I didn't know what to do or who to be. Back home, we had my mom's abstract photographs of garden tools on the wall or sculptures she made out of soda cans. My dad shined his shoes on weekends so they'd look good when he got to the office and drove me to baseball practice in a red Mazda convertible. But my dad could also flip the upstate switch, and he never taught me how. So I stood there, trying to process the idea of even owning a gun, let alone prowling around your own yard firing it at things, trying to figure out what to say. Thankfully, Uncle Rob showed up a few minutes later, and I didn't have to say anything, because Uncle Rob always has plenty to talk about. Hello there. Hey, I'm Sam. Good to see you. I'm going to come in for a hug. Oh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a southern thing, that hugging. Oh, yeah. Routine. Oh, yeah. Us people from close to the border of Vermont, you know, we, we have a cold, distant attitude. I've been corrupted by my, my urban lifestyle. Yeah. Soon, everyone is on Uncle Tom's porch. And even if I don't necessarily speak the same language as my uncles, I'm reminded of how good it feels just to be present for their gruff, jovial banter. I get to hear all my favorite Tom and Rob stories for the first time in years, the business Tom and Poppy always joke about starting that would sell fake deer carcasses to city slickers visiting Ithaca who want to fit in with the locals. If they ever start it, they're going to call the company Faux Does and Bogus Bucks. There's an extended riff at Uncle Rob's expense related to the fact that while we're going to bury my grandmother's ashes this afternoon, it's taken two years to convince Rob to let it happen. Grandma actually died in 2015, but Rob's been carrying her ashes around in his car since her passing not quite ready to say goodbye. Poppy and Tom tease him that they almost called the cops to report a man driving around with a dead woman in the trunk of his Cadillac. It's good-natured, brotherly, and genuinely fun to be with them. But I still can't figure out what to contribute to the conversation. So, naturally, I ruin the moment by bringing up Uncle Dick. Can I convince you to come in with me and sure. do this interview? Yeah. Since yeah, I've got you in the in the storytelling mode. It takes a while, but little by little, over the course of separate interviews with my dad and his brothers, I start to piece together a vision of their life as kids in Wellsville, New York, a hundred miles west and even more remote than Ithaca. And slowly, a portrait of Uncle Dick begins to emerge. And a, a really nice smile. A little shy and uh, didn't have a lot of big self-image. Chubby, happy, pleasant kid. Not somebody would argue with you. Tom and Rob's description of Dick makes me think about the only picture of him I've ever seen. It's his senior portrait from high school. His straight, dark hair is neatly parted, and he's grinning broadly, wearing a pair of dorky glasses with thick black frames. He has big dimples in his cheeks. My parents didn't smoke, they didn't drink, they didn't swear. Going to church Sunday as a family was, was important. It was a requirement. Uh, there was always prayer before meals. 
When it came to cultural values, it sounds like my grandparents' worldview was about what you'd expect for a small rural community in the early 1960s. Uncle Tom still remembers the relationship advice he got from my grandfather. Anyhow, he took me aside and he says, uh, you're old enough to start dating now. And he said, uh, you don't want to do anything because when you get married, you want to marry a virgin. And if you do anything, there'll be fewer virgins. That was it. Some total of sex talk. I don't know when Dick realized he was gay, but I can't imagine Wellsville was a fun place to realize it back then. Poppy described it as a town without any intellectual overlay. No college or university for miles, three stations on the television. While Tom, Rob, and Poppy would spend long afternoons wandering through the woods, building forts, and playing with toy rifles, Dick started taking painting classes. He and my dad shared a bedroom, and at night they'd stay up late talking. At one point I had a crystal radio, and I could pick up the Isle of Man off England on it. And uh, Dick and I would talk about that. Dick was interested in uh, Europe a lot and in, you know, what was beyond Wellsville. Poppy knew there was something different about Dick, even if he didn't totally understand it. When other kids, and even his teachers at school, would see Uncle Dick, they'd snicker and call him Peaches. There was mail that came to the house that was, had a homosexual, at least wink, wink, isn't this naughty kind of aspect towards it. Like magazines or something? Um, yeah, and letters and that sort of thing, solicitations to subscribe to magazines and so on. In 1965, Dick escaped to college, where Uncle Rob says he finally found a community. And it was one of those things where you see the friends, you know you have these lingering suspicions about your brother, and yeah, these are, these are them. But Rob could tell it wasn't enough. Over time, Dick stopped calling his parents, and his friends started to. One day, my grandma picked up the phone, and one of Dick's friends told her he was worried about Dick. Grandma told Rob about the call, and the next time Dick was over at Rob's house... Rob did his best to figure out what was going on. I was out in the garage working on my car, and he was there, and I was trying to get him to talk to me. And I, this is the last thing he ever said to me, so I remember it. How do I tell you it's none of your business? Can I ask you to tell me the story of the day that he killed himself yeah um may 7 1966 i had a 22 rifle i would go out with friends and plink at birds and things um and he asked me whether he could borrow it to go hunting and be in a oblivious teenager, I didn't it, say to myself, wait a minute, he's never gone out for that. He asked me if I wanted to go with him, and I did not, which obviously has thrown a ton of guilt on me. Um, and so he left, 
And I think that it was then the mail came, I think, and this friend had written Grandma and Grandpa, and Grandpa got me and said, we need to go looking and see if we can find Dick. Do you know where Dick is? We started driving around, and Grandpa dropped me to walk one walk along the road looking for him and calling for him while he drove further, and he did. And I walked along, and I came to... There was a sheriff's deputy there with a car parked, and he asked me what I was doing. I said I was looking for my brother, and he said, well, I think he's dead. Uh, I don't know that they had a lot of compassion training. Uh, I remember almost folding up double with that. And we got in the car and went back and told Grandma. Uh, I can still remember her piercing scream. Uh, and then it was the details of calling people and telling them and Grandma and Grandpa were, of course, pretty devastated, and I did a fair amount of the calling. Um, I think I did all the calling. I don't know all the things that motivated him. He didn't leave a note for me or for Grandma and Grandpa. Um, he kind of walked out of our lives, I guess. We had some kind of a memorial service for him in which most of the family came in. Um, and we went on with our lives from there. I was stunned. I couldn't believe my dad had been through something like this. And I couldn't understand how something like this had been kept from me. It felt so pivotal in the lives of so many people, my dad and my grandparents in particular. How could something like the story of Uncle Dick just never come up? Back at the hotel, I lay in bed, replaying the day's conversations over and over again in my mind. I still didn't feel like I knew who Dick was. But it seems like Poppy and my uncles didn't either. Not really. At least now, I knew what happened to Dick. But still, I couldn't get over the fact that for years, when it came to the Uncle Dick story, my dad just didn't want to go there. So I decided to literally go there. I'm standing for the first time in my life on Hook Place, where my dad lived with Grandma and Grandpa and Dick in 1966, when Dick died. I've come to Hook Place to find the spot where Uncle Dick stood in his last, loneliest moment. I want him to know that there is someone who isn't afraid to stand there with him, even if it's much too late. Hey, Poppy. Hey, how are you? How's it going? Not too bad. Not too bad. Life is rolling along. We got out and got a nice run in this morning and uh, just about to put the old finishing touches on preparations for 
some, we're having a few people over for dinner tonight. So, so I'm actually, as we speak, on Hook Place in Ithaca. Huh. Um, and I wanted to, if you can remember where it is, I was hoping to try to find the spot where you guys found Dick. Um, I could probably, although I haven't been there in, you know, 40 years, I could give you loose directions. If you go up to the top of Hook Place, it runs into no, a T. I just pulled off the road and seen that, yes, there is a creek. I'm looking at an embankment with a bunch of wildflowers and a sign that says Cornell Botanic Gardens Natural Area. I think this might be the spot. The trees are very thick and tall on either side of the road. The greens are very deep. The lapping of the creek is very gentle and faint. This place certainly matches the descriptions of it that I've been given. Downstream from the road a little bit by the side of a creek. I think I'm going to try to walk down there and stand by the water. I just thought I heard something in the trees. That's obviously crazy. Kind of afraid there's going to be a bear. There is a little pathway that winds along the side of the creek. Just winds back through. Oh, I just heard something. I realized I hadn't planned what I was going to do if I found the spot. But I knew I wanted Dick to know that I've been where he's been. Dick, if you're here, I love you. I wish I'd had a chance to meet you. Your life clearly plays some very significant role in mine, and I just don't know what it is yet. I know this wasn't your final resting place, and I know it was a very tortured journey that brought you here, but this is a beautiful natural spot, and I hope you had at least some semblance of peace in the moments before you died. I'm feeling really freaked out, and I think I'm gonna leave now. That was definitely something moving. Sorry, Cornell. I just stepped on something very freshly planted. And it's starting to rain. Okay. Okay. It wasn't... There weren't any, like, bears or anything walking around down there, or no deer. Maybe it was just the running water and the cars driving by. But there was something alive down there. It was just something on that gentle breeze winding through the trees. Something unresolved. And I know how this sounds. But that's what it felt like. 
I realized there was someone else I'd never really talked to about the Uncle Dick story and all the things it had brought up for me. Do you remember when you found out about the Uncle Dick story? I do. Jake and I hadn't ever talked about Uncle Dick again after that night in the dark. And I wanted to ask him if he shared my suspicion that Poppy had told him the Uncle Dick story to save his life. I found out about it, oddly enough, from a therapist that I was seeing when I was 17 or 18. It turns out Poppy never told Jake the story of Uncle Dick. He didn't invoke the ghost of his dead brother to save the life of his youngest son. The real story is that Jake's therapist at the time asked Jake if there was any history of mental illness in the family. Jake said he didn't think so. The therapist called Poppy to confirm, and Poppy told her about Uncle Dick. So at Jake's next session, she told Jake that Poppy had mentioned an uncle who'd killed himself, a story that Jake, like me, had never heard. I clearly remember my first thought being that somehow one of our other uncles had committed suicide and I was somehow just finding out about it at that moment. So there goes that theory. Jake never actually heard the Uncle Dick story from Poppy. It wasn't this lasso that Poppy heroically swung to pull Jake back from the brink. Actually, it turns out Jake was never even at the brink. I do remember it was a difficult time, but I wasn't having destructive thoughts or anything. Um, I have never been. I've never had suicidal thoughts. Apparently, to this day, Jake's still never really talked about Uncle Dick with my dad. And Jake's life was never in danger. I seem to have made that part up. As I discovered in a follow-up conversation with Poppy, that's not the only part of the story I got wrong. I never made a decision not to talk to you about this, and I would have thought that we did. I guess I've never felt that it was hugely formative in my life. It was an unpleasant event. It deprived you of an uncle who probably would have been quite an interesting addition to the array. Um, Certainly I've had some guilt that I carry around, but I I haven't seen how that was relevant to you or Jake. Poppy didn't even realize he'd never told me about Dick because he didn't think it was that big a deal. So why does it feel like such a big deal to me? Why did I invent such a powerful connection to it? Suddenly, it all made sense. Jake, my uncles, and my dad... They're not the ones who are haunted by Uncle Dick. I am. And the more I thought about it, the more I kept coming back to something Uncle Rob said in our interview. All three of your uncles, and no, that includes your father, have sin on our hands that we know, whether we're religious or not, we know. And it impacted the lives of our kids. You being one of the kids, being through that situation, you know what I'm talking about. And I did know exactly what situation he was talking about. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. But first, since the topic of suicide comes up in this episode, 
we wanted to make sure everyone was aware of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which you can call anytime at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you're worried about yourself or someone you know, please give them a call. It's a free 24-7 service, and it can provide support, information, and local resources. The problem started one evening in the driveway of our old house. I was 16, and I was sitting in that Mazda convertible Poppy used to drive me to baseball practice in. At the time, the thing I wanted most in the world was to pick my friend Grace Palmer up in that car and take her on a date. There were two problems with this dream. One was that I didn't know how to operate the Mazda's manual transmission. The other was that Grace had said no when I asked her out. I was crying into my algebra homework when my dad sat down next to my bed, put a hand on my back, and told me in a measured, even tone that things might feel bad tonight, but that no matter what, the sun would come up the next morning. It's hard to explain how comforting it was to hear him say that. But as soon as he did, I knew he was right, and that I could count on these terrible feelings eventually fading away. It also helped that he suggested that even if I wasn't going to take Grace on a date, I should spend some time sitting in the Mazda while it was parked, pushing in the clutch and practicing with the gear shift, which I started doing every evening after dinner. I'd climb into the driver's seat, push the clutch out, grip the smooth leather steering wheel, shut my eyes, and begin shifting, imagining myself zipping around the neighborhood, measuring the distance in my mind between each stop sign and traffic signal, eventually finding my way to the highway, pretending I was accelerating up to fifth gear, and then all the way back down again, over and over. I'd open my eyes and picture Grace in the rearview mirror, receding, until it was just me and the open road. And then, one night, I climbed into the Mazda, and it smelled like perfume. Something intensely floral. That's odd, I thought. Mom doesn't wear perfume. I looked through the windshield at the chipped paint on the garage, and my eyes started to sting. Oh, no, I said, out loud, to no one. Another seemingly sweet aroma, with sinister implications. Back when I was doing interviews for the pilot episode of Family Ghosts, my aunt asked me if I really wanted to know all the unsavory stuff I was discovering about my mom's dad, Grandpa Gilly. And do you want to know stuff about your grandfather? I do, but I default towards wanting to know everything. Because my feeling is, if I don't know everything, I'm going to make up stuff that scares me and think, well, that could be true. And mm -hmm. I never used to feel that way. And now I feel that way all the time because of what happened with mom and poppy. And I can't get over it. It, I, I can't get rid of it. I do it all day, every day, whenever I'm talking to or interacting with anybody. And because of that, I feel more comfortable finding out the weird stuff if people are comfortable sharing it. 
because it makes me feel like I know where the corners of the room are. But the thing is, there's one corner I'm too scared to shine a light in. And what's this little doohickey over here? The backup recorder. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> All right, should I sing the national anthem or... uh... I went back to my dad's office for another conversation. Because since that summer, when I was 16, conversations with my dad have been hard for me. We've stayed in touch, of course. We've gone to ball games. We've compared tasting notes on craft beer. He recently recommended a really great nature preserve to go hiking in. But in the midst of all those things, it's always felt like I'm talking to him through a thickness like I'm huddled behind a curtain that I've drawn around me and the question I'm always too scared to ask. The one about the night of the Mazda and everything that happened after. The divorce and the distance. And I miss the time when I could go to him with the most timid, pathetic parts of myself. Like I did that time I was so distraught about Grace, and he told me the sun would come up the next day. Back in his office, I asked if he remembered that night. Yes. Yes, I remember that. I I think uh, if you were lucky, that was probably the only time I gave that advice, but it's one of those things that I would be likely to repeat in some form or another. I don't know if I ever conveyed to you um, how meaningful that was, because at the time, I was so upset about it that I couldn't sleep. And there was something about the way that you said, no matter what, the sun's going to come up tomorrow and you're going to get to continue on that didn't feel like it didn't feel like hokum you know what I mean it Mm -hmm. felt like you were able to say that to me and mean it because maybe you had said the same thing to yourself I I don't know whether it was a motto per se but yeah I mean if it wasn't a motto of mine at the time it certainly um was a lesson of that uh, event in my life and a number of other events in life. There it was, finally, the moment to ask. So I finally asked. To be as candid as I'm going to be with you, there are aspects of how that happened and why that happened that I'm not going to discuss with you because there it involves other people and um so yeah there was a time when i had to make a decision about what uh to say to you and how to say it to you um and certainly part of the context of that was that you were at an age and jake was at an age where um, you don't need to know all of the intimacies of your parents' life. I don't know that there's ever an age where you do need to know all the intimacies of your parents' life. Um, I, I guess there are people who feel differently about that than I do, but I'm, I'm not one of them. I wanted this to be the story where the levee finally broke where I finally learned the truth, and Poppy and I found this new level of emotional fluidity with each other. But that's not what it is. 
This isn't a story about things he did or didn't do. It's the story of who he is and who I am. If I've learned anything from my search for Uncle Dick's ghost, it's that I'm so good at convincing myself that my worst fears are true that sometimes I lose track of what really happened because my head's too full of fairy tales. And I know now that my dad probably doesn't have to imagine his worst fears coming true. He's already survived something unimaginable. But I'm sick of hiding behind the curtain. And that's the part I really needed him to hear. The other thing that this has all made me think about is um, harder to talk about. Uh, sometimes I feel like uh, our relationship in the last few years um, has been characterized by like a little bit of distance. In my mind, it's maybe because you know that those things happened and you feel like it's better to, to put that stuff away or leave it in the past. And uh, I think hearing you talk about how you had to just continue with your life after everything happened with Dick made me feel very close to you and far away from you and at the same time because I I felt like uh, I kind of had to just continue with my life after I lost you in a way and I guess I think that's the the reason that this story has such a hold on me if that makes sense I, I guess so it, it I, I mean yes it makes sense um, we, we should put in here that it's a very weird thing for me to be talking to you and wanting to reach out and hug you with a microphone in my face and a microphone in your face and earphones on and we're sitting in a setting that's very sort of New Yorker cartoon uh, <laughs> psychoanalyst couch uh, kind of thing and um, oh, but before we continue, maybe I could put him down, and we could just—I could just give you a hug. <laughs> I really do love you, puppy. I love you. I just need you to know that I want to be—I want to be your son in full light. You know. That's a very good thing. And uh, if plunging into the details of Dick's passing has aided in that, uh, that's certainly a, a good thing that came out of a tragic event. If I analyze myself as having a weakness, I'm not always good about, I, I try to make things good for everybody and sometimes they can't be good for everybody. And you know, there are consequences I wish could have been avoided, but they were not. Well, we still have time for a lot of new consequences. <laughs> good. As I was leaving Uncle Tom's house after we buried Grandma's ashes, my Aunt Linda... Rob's wife, tapped me on the shoulder and handed me a box. Inside were two of Uncle Dick's oil paintings. Wait, so I could, I could really take these? Oh, yeah, yeah, 
yeah. I mean, I, I want people to have them that want them, you know. And that would mean so much to me okay. if I could. You could certainly Thank you. Them. The paintings of the Ithaca countryside are beautiful. The greens are deep and vibrant. The houses are warm and bright. And up above them, the air is clear. Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Verilyn Williams, Odelia Rubin, and Jason DeLeon. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. Our show features original music by Luis Guerra, and our show art is by Paul Glankler. Our managing producer is Mia Lobel, and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Special thanks to David Kushner, Jennifer Trowbridge, and Lily Tyson. Remember, if you're worried about yourself or someone you care about, you can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline anytime at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. It's free, it's 24-7, and they can help you. Ghost family, this marks the end of our first season, and we are so grateful to all of you for tuning in. I'm going to be honest with you. Right now, we actually don't know yet if we're going to get to make more episodes of Family Ghosts. But I can tell you that we really, really want to and that the best way for that to happen is for all of you to do anything you can think of to help more people find our show. Please, tell your friends and family about us, leave us a review in Apple Podcasts, and post about us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is FamGoShow. That's F-A-M-G-H-O Show. You can also join our mailing list, The Ghost Post, and find out more about our team on our website, familyghosts.panoply.fm. Whatever happens, from all of us on the production team, thank you for listening. And remember, every house is haunted. <laughs>